You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jerry Park and me, Nils Kastor-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Now, for those of you who are regular listeners, our conversations are intended for you to learn and grow as rules-based investors. And if you're new to the show, we hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check back the catalog and listen to past episodes that you may have missed, like last week's episode with Harry, where we discussed how investors can best protect their portfolios against three different types of equity market drawdowns using trend-following and volatility strategies, which I encourage you to go and check out if you missed it, not least because Harris is great at explaining some of these complex issues in a very clear and straightforward way. Just like you, Jerry, how are you doing? Good to have you back today. Hey, Niels. Um, good to see you. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm doing well. It's uh, 10 a.m. Eastern, so I versus our usual 7 a.m. So I'm ready to go. You, you don't know what you're going to get today because uh, you don't have me all tired and trying to stay awake uh, by the coffee. So, uh, which by the way is in a big uptrend. So I'm happy about that. Yeah, by the way, that is true. Yeah, no, it'll be exciting to see you uh, on the loose, so to speak. For all of you listening, as I often say, if you love the podcast, please get someone else to listen. We certainly appreciate your support. Now, today... Jerry and I, we, uh, as mentioned, are recording a little bit early, uh, a day earlier than normal. So just so you know, again, to reiterate, if uh, if you think we're missing out something, big event that happens after our recording, you know why. Now, in terms of a quick summary for the week, and given that it is a quiet week so far, I don't uh, have the usual details that I uh, normally have. But to me, there is one standout sector maybe for the week, and that's energies. We have seen a bit of pressure on prices against the longer term uptrends that most trend followers will be holding. Maybe this is related to the news headlines that the US is selling 20 million barrels of crude oil from the strategic reserves. But I think most people may have forgotten that that's actually old news because it was first reported back in August. But in any event, it has been a soft week for energies. Crypto and Bitcoin actually, um, and Ether, so crypto in general, but Bitcoin and Ether in particular, has also had a soft week, uh, down 15-20% on the week, which of course has happened many times before. But the beneficiaries so far this week at least seems to have been uh, things like volatility, if you're long, but also the US dollar. It's broken out of its range that's been stuck there for a while. So that's kind of exciting to watch and see what happens next. But I want to know from you, Jerry, um, what has been standing out to you since uh, you were last on a few weeks ago, either market-wise, performance-wise, anything? Uh, well, since uh, you know the last time I was on in the past few weeks, we've definitely seen uh, you know the strengthening of the dollar, and um, today it's I think making new highs against the euro. So I held on to those currencies, those short currencies, most of them, and. So I'm being rewarded today and uh, recently for uh, hanging in there with those short currencies, long dollar. Uh, it's been pretty choppy for me and uh, discouraging on these interest rates. You know, the whole world talks about inflation and higher rates, and we we see a down move in the bonds and then a big rally 
a few days later. So that's kind of been sort of choppy for me and uh, give backs also in LME and energy. Like you said, big, big give backs and natural gas. I trade both of those natural gases. So it was a real big come down. I talked bad about uh, take profits or vol targeting, but it was certainly it worked better in that UK nat gas. Uh, but of course, we're still seeing good trends in some of the softs like uh, sugar, coffee doing really well. And uh, oh yeah, I guess uh, material part of my portfolio is Bitcoin and that's the euphoria at 65, 66,000 and now it's been selling off. So a lot of pluses and minuses this month. Yeah, definitely a few corrections here and there. And um, so, I mean, overall it looks like things are generally flat, at least if I look uh, at, at our portfolio um, for the last, uh, yeah, well, for this month so far, it's it's pretty flat in terms of our returns. Um, so we'll see how it all transpires. In terms of our volatility strategy, same thing, same picture, down a fraction for the month. But it's been a really quiet period for uh, for the our approach, at least, even though um, volatility as a market or the VIX as a market has been reasonably volatile. And so, so we'll see how it all goes. For my own trend-following portfolio, obviously these numbers are as of Thursday and not Friday as we normally do. But it's also flat for the month. It's still up 8% for the year. Performance so far this month breaks down in terms of uh, groups. Um, Group 1, classical trend, up 69 basis points. Group 2, long bias trending, uh, trend-following down 2.34. And Group 3 are these fast-reacting models um, that is up 1.62%. In terms of sector attributions, best sectors are really equities and softs, and the worst are energies, currencies, and base metals. And if we drill down to the single markets, um, DAX, NASDAQ, and the euro uh, are the top three. And then at the bottom, we find Canadian dollar heating oil and crude oil. If I look at the exposure in the portfolio, it's still mostly along the most markets. There are a few shorts like the euro, the yen, and the US 10-year notes. And in terms of the risk to stop level, um, it's come down uh, this week. It's down to 7.91%. Last week, it was 10.93%. So a little bit tightening up in terms of the stops and maybe a few exits during the week. Now, Jerry, we're going to jump in some questions. You brought along some tweets we're going to talk about. I have an article, which was a profile of one of our peer peers in our industry. So there's lots of things we can talk about. But the first question I want to get to is uh, from Robert. Robert um, has been writing this for a He wrote it in a little while ago, but because last time you were on, we did the quiz, the turtle quiz. We have been, you know, haven't been able to get to this. So uh, I appreciate, Robert, your patience on this one. Robert writes, still listening to your podcast, my weekly companion to remind me to stick to the rules. I have a question for Jerry Parker, if that's okay. Jerry often mentions that he has single stocks in his portfolios. In the last podcast, he mentioned Moderna and Tesla. Great examples, but given that these are big winners, there must also be losers. And this made me wonder about the selection criteria and selection universe. In terms of universe, can you quickly graduate from the 30 stocks in the Dow Jones to the S&P 500 and then to the Russell 3000? That's a lot of reasonably liquid stocks to choose from. And Tesla started its stellar run long before it joined the S&P 500. One possibility would be to take the S&P as a selection universe and then successfully take signals until your allocation to this strategy has been filled. 
let's say 20% of your equity. Respecting these 20% after this point, new positions can only be opened once old ones are closed. To be fully rules-based, one would also have to be able to rank entry signals once they simultaneously exceed the number of quote-unquote open slots in the strategy, assuming that we are working with end-of-date data. So if Jerry could provide a general idea of how he approaches this, that would be great. I'm assuming that there is a rule of sorts. Otherwise, we would be falling into discretionary, into the discretionary camp, which is very opposite of what trend following is about. Thanks again, and thanks for a great show, and continued good luck. Thanks so much, Robert, from Lisbon. So, Jerry, how do you find these docs? Uh, yeah, there is a systematic process of sorts. Thanks for that, uh, of sorts, you know. Um, I think it's important to, rem to remember that I, I will have a, I want a fixed universe. So I don't want to change, you know, the markets I trade, uh, have them in, kick them out. You know, if uh, something hasn't done well, I'll get rid of it. But then if it starts doing well, I'll get it back in. So I don't do that. I think for CTAs, it can be quite paralyzing to, uh, you know, the, the markets, the futures markets give us, you know, a fair amount of currencies, commodities, and interest rates to trade, we just trade them. And it, it's almost like the exchanges are dictating to us what we're going to trade. And we're happy with that. And in stock indices as well, there's 20 or 20 of each or maybe 50 commodities, something like that, you know, and uh, we, we choose the ones we like and we that are liquid. Oh, now I have 5,000 stocks to choose from. What am I going to do? Then I'm not going to, I'm going to ignore it and I'm going to trade the indices. So not me. But I still can get a little paralyzed how, given all of this freedom that I'm going to take, that others may not, how do I get down to my 30-some stocks? And just like all the other markets, I think the right approach is base your selection criteria on diversification. You know, get a group of stocks that are not so correlated to each other. And then if someone's going to say, well, what about last February when everything was correlated, all the stocks went down? And I'd say, yeah, that's a bummer. We are faced with that. But you know what? All the other markets went down as well. So sometimes all the stocks behave the same, and sometimes all the markets behave the same, and we lose money. But anyways, most of the time, you know, they go back to, uh, we'll see some meaningful diversification. So he's exactly right. I chose Moderna, Tesla, uh, others, Bitcoin, you know, strictly because it added diversification to my portfolio. And by my analysis, the stocks that I chose were not so correlated to each other or the S&P. Now, unfortunately, I did, fortunately, I did hit on those big ones and a couple more, but as you can anticipate, not only did some of my other stocks not do as well, they, they're, they didn't make hardly any money at all. They're shorts now. And so I'm not that happy that as the S&P makes all-time highs and the NASDAQ and the Dow, I've got a a couple of big winners, but also have a, quite a few stocks that are dramatically underperforming uh, beyond meat, canopy growth, DraftKings. You know, these are what I would consider to be weird, different, single industry, a single product, you know, something that uh, might give me, you know, they're not going to be that correlated to other stocks. And they're going to give me maybe an edge as it relates to finding an outlier. But then, of course, you know, if it's not going to look like the S&P, I'm going to have to suck it up when Beyond Meat's a short. Canopy Growth, which is marijuana, it's a short. DraftKings is becoming a short. 
So, you know, uh, this is the way we sort of choose to do uh, life. You know, maybe the dollar is headed for a big rally, a huge monster run, and my longs and the ruble and the shekel will turn into losses. But I'm happy that right now that I have meaningful diversification. I have longs and shorts in the commodity, in the currencies. I'd like to have more shorts in the commodities. So I can't really complain that I have some longs and shorts in the stocks. So let me... Let me bring up just something that I thought about as you were speaking there, uh, Jerry. So, so one of the things that I think we tend to say as an industry is that, you know, we, we obviously love direction, we love volatility, but actually what we, what we kind of really like is divergence in our portfolio. We want markets to do something more, more or less independently rather than just being highly correlated, that, that imposes a lot of risk in the portfolio. And so I think if you think about it that way, then I think it makes perfect sense to have individual stocks rather than the indices, because as you as you rightly uh, say, I mean, sure, the equity indices are making new highs, but they're all making new highs pretty much, maybe with the exception of Japan and 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 Hong Kong, but but generally speaking, so so they tend to be incredibly correlated. So if you want this divergence, so to speak, then having individual uh, names in the portfolios makes a lot of sense, I think. The question will be, of course, well, maybe should I blend my equity total exposure with a little bit of the indices and a little bit of, and maybe a majority of, of individual names to again get a mix and maybe some benefit from sometimes when the indices move perhaps in a fashion where they're easier to hold on to. Potentially, I don't know, never looked at it. But in general, I think what what Robert's question gets to is just market selection in general. And I think this is one area of trend following that has subjective measures. That's we 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 choose markets because with some level of discretion, meaning that we we don't have hard hard and fast rules to say, yeah, I have to trade these markets. It's just simply not there. So I think that's where the the main discretionary part of, of what we do comes into because that's part of our research. Which markets do we want to trade? Yeah, and I think um, it's diverse. It's um, diversification and liquidity. And um, then the number, I guess, and there's two, I think uh, there, you're bringing up two different types of divergence. One is along the ruble and short the euro. Right. And then the other kind is divergent trading versus convergent. So how about what's going to give me a good chance for an outlier? So I don't like to trade big conglomerates because they have too many businesses going on. I want to like uh, a new company or a company that hasn't diversified itself yet. It's only involved in, uh, uh, you know, vegetarian meat, uh, beyond meat or DraftKings or uh, electric cars. And at some point in time, if they diversify too much, you may say, okay, I'm going to kick that out. And kicking things out, I think, permanently and adding things that had, I've been adding lots of markets over the past few years. That's good. But other than that, we want this fixed universe so we can apply the systems consistently to the same markets over time. Yeah, and for me, when when I use the word divergence, because I, I, I think you're absolutely right that that, it, that can actually be used in different ways. For me, divergence in this sense is really just finding markets that are independent of each other, really, rather than too highly correlated. It's not so much whether we are long or short one one or the other at any given point in time. It's just that, generally speaking, 
the ruble and 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 you know the Australian dollars, they will probably not be affected by the same thing. So they are more independent than maybe the euro and the Swiss franc will be, <laughs> to to make an extreme example there. So that's what I mean, and I think this is what we love to find and what we love to see in the portfolios. And this is another thing that uh, will come to maybe later. And this is just this thing about uh, you know inflation because. I do think, generally speaking, that markets tend to become a little bit more loose or divergent, so to speak. Um, when inflation comes into play, they react a little bit different, other, you know, compared to when central banks have a really hard control level. Anyways, that's a different point. I want to get to a question from Brian. Hey, Brian, thanks for also your patience, because I know you wrote in a little while ago. But this was also for Jerry, so we stay with the single stock model. Brian writes, for Jerry's single stock model, how do you treat dividends? Are they absorbed into fund balance or reinvested into the current positions? Good question. I think uh, Brian asked me this question recently in uh, Clubhouse. <laughs> okay. But I wanted just to make one final comment on sure. the, the point you made. You made a good point. And, and like I try to categorize these stocks, you know, like I want some stocks that are, oh, they're commodity related, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I can't get commodity exposure. I can't, I can't get exposure in lithium or uranium. So I'm going to find a stock, hopefully, that um, will give me some, give me that market. I want something that uh, doesn't have a lot of, one single business, weird stocks like Beyond Meat, Canopy Growth. And then I thought, just like you were saying, in order to maintain the divert maximum divergence and asymmetry that you lose in an index sometimes what's going to carry the day is kind of like earnings you know who's earning a lot of money and so i thought like hey i know what i can do if i'm really want to kind of mimic have my cake and eat it too and mimic the s p or the cac 40 or the dax i'll choose a couple of those stocks from those indices that are highly weighted so I can get most of the S&P with Microsoft, Apple, and Google. And then whatever the other indices, you know, the, the CAC 40, it's probably one or two stocks that is going to give me most of the CAC 40. So I'm, I'm getting that similarity because we all don't want to venture too far off, you know, from our peers and step out and get uh, smacked. But then again, I'm not compromising my beliefs of trying to get away from these indices and apply those systems to the each individual market and not a conglomeration, uh, really something that doesn't exist. So, but on the dividends, um, I don't change my position uh, when I get a dividend. I sort of uh, uh, include it into my income, like interest income. Yeah. However, you know, I have to adjust my data to take into consideration dividends. So from the future side, we're going to have the continuous contracts, those decisions and those rules, trying to be consistent as possible. And then on the stock side, it's probably a bit more complicated than a continuous contract, especially for all of us who are new to the stock world. But adding those, having your data provider, CSI in our case, to include those dividends and adjust that price, I think is the way to uh, stay consistent in uh, a legitimate data series. Yeah. Brian goes on to say, do they impact performance? Obviously, the dividends we're talking about here. For my system, I immediately reinvest any dividends into new shares of the same stock. I look at it as similar to rolling futures positions. Does Jerry approve this approach for one of his 
cockroaches? <laughs> I approve of that approach. And uh, once again, I have my position set on day of entry using the ATR uh, unit size, and it's sacrosanct. Unless I get a big addition, new client addition or client redemption, I'm never going to change that position based upon anything else. Good. Excellent. Well, thanks for the questions. Thanks for the patience. Uh, as always, you can always send them in. Info at toptradersonplug.com. That's where they should be sent to. Now, Jerry, you brought along a few tweets, some of them related to some articles that we can dive into. So I'm not too sure exactly where we're going to go with this, but uh, so that makes it even more exciting. But the first one I picked uh, was from a New York Times article called Risk Return Tradeoffs. It's phony. Uh, I think it may be related to a new book. Do you want to take it from here? <laughs> yeah, it's funny because that's the, my favorite, my first okay. one I brought up as well. So I like this article, you know, um, I like finding things that I can agree with from the New York Times. I feel like it gives me like this instant credibility. So uh, <laughs> I love this article and it's an article uh, from the guys, uh, Spitznagel from uh, right. Universa and the, the guys who made you know, thousands of percent with their tail risk strategy, Taleb. And I am able to cherry pick and pull out a few sentences and twist it into supporting my beliefs about trend following, even though I don't think he's much of a trend follower necessarily or anyone who's interested in diversification, um, the way we practice diversification. Um, okay. But uh, the first quote is, uh, conventional wisdom in investing says that a trade-off between that says there's a trade-off between risk and return. To make a lot of money, you must take the chance of big losses. Play it safe, and you'll most likely have to settle for meager returns. And then I say, uh, well, no, he, he sort of says maybe reducing risk actually increases returns. And so what he's saying is take care of those losses. Don't let a loss devastate your portfolio. And you can, from our point of view, you know, we believe that totally. We, we take lots of positions. We... Um, spread it out. We do shorts, lots of different sectors and markets. And um, we don't uh, put our portfolio in a, in a situation where we're going to have a chance for a big loss because I would define loss as a loss of capital taking a big loss. Mm -hmm. I risk 25 basis points per trade thereabouts. And of course, a drawdown from a hugely profitable trade I don't necessarily pay too much attention to that, and I wouldn't classify it as a loss. But that's I'm in a minority on that. But what he's sort of getting at, is maybe reducing risk actually increases returns, is the whole idea of compounding and needing to make, as we lose money, we need to make more money to cover those losses. If you're down 50%, you have to make 100% to get back to even. So these losses can have... Uh, bigger impacts on that part of the compounding part of our returns. And so sometimes actually reducing risk, you can get ahead of the game better than concentrated bets. Yes, they can pay off, but they can also put a big ding in your portfolio. Yeah, I mean, it is certainly a topic that is uh, something we uh, come across quite often. And, and I think it's, um, I mean... It, it 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 you we talked about Moderna earlier today and 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 um, now we're talking about these things what 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 people uh, like and what they should do in terms of risk and return and so on and so forth and it kind of re reminds me of of this um, 
sort of story that uh, one of the previous guests, Andrew Lowe, Professor Andrew Lowe of MIT, um, talked about where he, when he does a, a big speaking engagement, he always starts by asking the group of people listening to him about four different equity curves and which equity curve they would choose. And there's like one which is really kind of just moving up very slowly, but very steadily. There's one which is more like a 45 degree, very stable and, and pretty, pretty good. And then there are a couple of more volatile ones which end up making more money, but you don't know what they are and you don't know which period you're looking at. And it was quite funny because, of course, the the, the one that people choose is like the 45 degree, hardly any volatility, and it just goes up to the right-hand side. But then when he tells people what it is, so the low, the, the low return but super steady is, is U.S. Treasury bonds, of course, or, or short-term interest rates. And then one that people never pick, um, uh, which is volatile, but is actually pretty good, is the S&P, which, of course, everybody loves today, but this was a different period. And then the, the one they also don't pick, which has really good returns, and uh, is actually Pfizer. And it's funny that he chose Pfizer. I think if you did that today, of course, the chart would look very different. So that's what it was reminding me. And of course, the one they choose is Bernie Madoff. Right, it's the one that is That's steady right. Eddie, uh, but they they just don't know that the period only goes up to just before he blows up. But I mean, the whole risk return debate is 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 very interesting. I think Richard got me onto this idea recently. I'm always putting words into his mouth, but uh, you kind of want this volatility. You kind of want you, in order to get the asymmetry, uh, the maximum asymmetry in this profitable trade. The possibility of loss is uh, no longer there. You, you know, cutting back on the vol, vol targeting or whatever portfolio management, it, you know, it's going to just decrease that asymmetry. So it's almost like you, you need that as a characteristic. And he goes on to say, um, and it's just fees right in my wheelhouse, you know. And I mean, I say the same things all the time, but I'm always trying to find. New ways of saying the same yes. thing. Yes. <laughs> hey, this guy actually agrees with me. So uh, anyways, he goes, any investor that focuses on risk-adjusted return has their head screwed on wrong. Focus on compounded rate of return. If raising wealth over time ceases to be the gold, goal, if people just don't want to lose money, just know it comes at a cost. And it mm. makes me laugh because can you imagine going up to someone, uh, an, an investor and saying, um, a low net worth, high net worth guy, woman who sold their business and wants to, you know, invest for the future and retirement. Uh, hey, I'm, I want to. I don't know if uh, raising your wealth over time uh, is should still be our goal. You know, they'd say, "What is wrong with you?" And uh, so, at the same time, though, that I keep preaching, let your profits run means you've got to be not so concerned with volatility of open profits. And this is the way to wealth and taking those small losses. Another point he brings up is survival is essential. And yeah, so mm -hmm. at the same time I look like I'm a wild man uh, letting the profits run, uh, I'm protecting my capital, I'm ready to do a cutback and reduce my positions and trade smaller for a while, this ultimate uh, greatest rule of all time but on a daily basis, no. On a constant, you know, part of my system, no. I'm letting those profits run. But sometimes, you know, February 2020, all hell breaks loose. Everything is a, goes to one. The markets are going crazy. I'm having a big, huge drawdown. It's coming from every place, losing trades and winning trades. Okay, here's the one rule that always works. 
cut your positions 20%, 40%, 50%. Wait till the world gets back to a little bit more normal and go right back and continue and go right, continue trading your system. And that's the bottom line. This is a great rule because it, it does make further drawdowns less likely, but it also says, what do I do? I'm confused now. Uh, well, you just keep doing the same thing, following your rules, but now we've adjusted once a year, once every couple of years, we're going to maybe run into these situations where we apply this money management rule, uh, but not a, not a daily basis of fall targeting and being very concerned about portfolio ups and downs and minimizing volatility and winning trades. Yeah, no, um, completely take on your point there. I think I think one thing we have to uh, try and understand then maybe why this is so difficult for most people to embrace and why they associate um, maybe higher volatility and even drawdowns with kind of the risk of total loss. I think it must go back to some degree that people are generally used to just being long only, meaning if you then look at your portfolio and things start to lose value and it loses 30, it loses 40%, the, the natural conclusion is if this continues, I'm going to lose all my money. I think the challenge is that people don't understand that that's not how we invest. That's not what our process looks like. And at some point, if the market continues down, that's actually a good thing for us. And also just the fact that we tend to focus on one thing, like the equity markets as being, oh, if that goes down, that's a bad thing. But of course, generally speaking, and, and of course, the news don't uh, help in, in helping people to understand this. There could be so many other things going in, in a great direction for from a trend-following point of view that is just not related to the equity market. So I think as long, I mean, I, I don't see any way that this is going to change. People will generally think that lower prices are bad and drawdowns, uh, you know, could continue forever. But I think it's because... The process is not quite clear for for people in terms of how how our systems react to this, and also maybe from the fact that passive has become so dominant. Oh, just just put some money in here and just sit and wait, do nothing. Yeah, it's it's more of a marketing thing, and it's easy for people to understand. And it's a little sad when I read articles about um, diversification with commodities, and it's just going to always only commodities that can be included in your portfolio uh, from a mainstream point of view are ones that have done well buy and hold. So let's mm -hmm. go back and check gold. Oh yeah. Okay. As of today, gold ha has been profitable on a buy and hold basis. It may not be in the future, so you may not be able to include it, but trend following transforms gold into a positive expectation game, but it also does with the grains and the currencies and the softs and the energy markets crude. And so it's in order to get, those markets, you must wrap them around uh, trend following, and that return stream becomes quite a bit different. I know my shorts, I mean, how, how great are the shorts? Uh, sometimes there's nothing going up, and uh, sometimes the best well, hedge is to be, you know, short some markets, long and short at the same time, but the shorts, you can't, you can't um, forget about how wonderful they are. No. Let's move on to a, a tweet, uh, another tweet. Again, it, this was related maybe to um, to Derek 
maybe a topic in in his group but also i think uh, maybe uh, bruno c came up with some uh, at least he was referenced in the tweet do you know which one i'm talking about when i apply trend following systems to the assets their correlation over time over the full sample over selected rolling windows decreases and i get more confident and relaxed to not take um, much care when selecting assets do you want to run with that i love that one i mean i think that last part is just kind of really funny because the rest of the investment world is going what is wrong with you you're not gonna you're gonna be relaxed and not take take much care when selecting assets when i I follow a lot of uh, hedge funds and stock traders and i look at their 13f positions uh, quarterly and uh, you know they're most of these guys they're they've got to find the best stocks you know and um four and they're not hitting the breakouts, taking small losses and hitting them again and, you know, riding the trend, but they really do need to figure out ahead of time what's going to go up. And so we sort of say, oh, no, with the trend following and we do these back tests, we don't even need to get too specific on what part of our portfolio weighting needs to be commodities or energy or FX, you know, Swiss and Euro are kind of correlated. So I need to be, have a precise weighting for each. Take that in consideration. I've done that. I've also done the back test and told my guys, hey, run the back test and trade everything the same size. Now, granted, we didn't. We had about 20 or 30 markets in uh, each in currencies, commodities, stocks, and bonds. We didn't overweight one sector. But those results, they would always come back and say, well, you know, those are kind of like our best results. Just ignore everything and just trade each market pretty much the same size. And uh, I think if you look at enough data and you have enough markets to where all the trades you know are pretty small and if you do overtrade energies a bit or too many currencies it's not really gonna uh, pop up is something that's too horrible then it's kind of comforting you know and i think another thing that happens in there is we were talking about correlated markets earlier but even in the correlated markets even your example of the swiss and the euro the swiss has had some amazing trends and outlier moves that did not happen in the euro i've mentioned silver doubled in 87 heating oil doubled a few times 80 84 and 90 and crude kind of sat there and then they go back to being 90 percent correlated so this is one of the kind of weird things about trend following and one of the reasons that i like to trade a lot of markets is because i do over trade crude heating oil unleaded WTI, gas oil, but I trade each one of those so small that even doing that when it's wrong, which is most of the time, it doesn't really have much impact on my overall performance. Yeah, I think you made another really good point, actually, um, which goes to this kind of just the bias we have as humans. And when you use the word precision, we love to be so precise. And with trend following, we don't have to be precise, which is something you would think people should embrace and would it would want to embrace, you know, it, What's better than not having to be super precise and just get it, you know, reasonably right and still have a profitable return stream over time. But yet we all, it's like when they ask these analysts at the beginning of the year, so where do you think the Dow Jones is going to end the year? And they say, oh, 37,859, right? I mean, instead of just saying, well, somewhere between 35 and 45,000, right? And they would be probably right. But uh, we love to be precise and it's just, uh, well, I guess we are precise with certain things in our models, but a lot of things we, as you say, we uh, we take a much more relaxed uh, approach. 
Yeah, because when you look at all the data and you look at a long-term back test to get a good sample size of trades, it uh, kind of a lot of that stuff kind of washes out. And what you're left with is uh, go with the trend and take small losses. Richard followed up on that tweet by saying, um, my many-year back test concluded that there are sufficient degrees of uncorrelated relationships in WTI and Brent so that I can safely trade both. There will be many periods where they become uncorrelated. And I mean, you can't get more correlated than Brent and WTI probably. So that's pretty interesting. Um, and then my comment was, you know, these outlier trades, these things that happen that never happened before and we can never predict, they're not, they have nothing to do with what you've seen historically. And that is so hard to take. I mean, I was just thinking like last night of all these big trades I have on and then all of these winner, uh, losers I have on. And then most of these trades, we do them, you know, they just seem so insignificant because I'm just thinking this thing's not going to go anywhere. I'm short uh, milk or long rubber. And I'm thinking, you know, it's not going to do anything. And you have to keep convincing yourself that this process, it does seem, in, you know, in hindsight that, the vast majority of these trades are absolutely not worth doing and insignificant. But in order to get to those outliers, you have to treat them all. I keep telling myself sometime, what is your level of intensity on a random like breakout? Well, you know what? It should be incredibly high. Like, oh my God, this could be one. And then observers would say, it's never one. Well, it's not never. It's almost never significant breakout. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. It's almost never but not always. But, and that's what makes all of our money. It is so true. So true. The next tweet, I got me intrigued because I saw um, Jerry Seinfeld in it. And I, st I immediately thought of uh, George Costanza. And maybe we're now talking about doing the opposite, right? It don't don't buy low and sell high, you know, buy high and sell low. But uh, that's not where you were going. So uh, why don't you uh, take us into the world of Jerry Seinfeld and tell us how that fits into our world? Yeah, I like this one as well. I thought it was really good. And once again, I can take almost any quote uh, and just twist it into something that hopefully I can use to make a point. <laughs> uh, and, my, and so his quote here is, uh, I think it's at the heart of system building. And it, it goes like this. If you're efficient, you're doing it the wrong way. The right way is the hard way. The show was successful because I micromanaged it. Every word, every line, every take, every edit, every casting. That's my way of life. Um, you know, when we first got to Chicago in 1983, the, one of the cliches was do the hard thing, uh, do the right thing. And the right thing is going to be hard. And that's just your philosophy. So from now on, uh, you can uh, filter out ideas take profit, get out at the highs, you know, buy the low, sell the high. Okay. That's you know, taking losses and letting small uh, profits turn into losses or small profits. That's hard. That's the hard thing to do, but it's the right thing to do. So I think in some ways, you know, um, trend following, I don't think it's very efficient, you know, in any kind of measurement of our returns, it should not come out to be very efficient. You can't let profits run and have a high sharp. And you're not going to make uh, the kind of money that you can make by taking small losses and going with the trend if you do that. So I love that. But then I got to thinking about something that you often bring up, and that is um, we like to um, 
give people some insights and, uh, tra- and rules about what, how we handle trend following. But for the vast majority of the people, they should default to putting their money with a professional CTA because we do micromanage. And there is a lot more to just buying the breakouts and diversifying one entry, one exit, and a stop loss. Yeah, these are the basics, but I just feel like putting this together into this system that is going to take care of all the good times and the bad times. There's so many intricate parts to it that we have learned through backtesting or experience. And every word, every line, every take, every edit, this is how we approach building these systems. Um, philosophically, it's easy to explain, but it is like building a very complex building with a lot of moving parts. And um, it's not easy. And I am as be- as good as I've ever been, and it's taken me 30-some years to get here, and I'll be better if I'm around in 10 or 20 years with these sort of seemingly minor details. But when you add them all up, they kind of matter. Yeah, you can't backtest experience, that's for sure. And um, and, and I, I like the point, and, and, and so... So my comments to that is the following. Yes, I mean, of course, we encourage people to get dig into trend following and, and do the stuff and do the hard work. And and, and also because, we, you know, at some point we hope that there will be the next generation of, of, of Jerry's out there and, and who will take the baton and, 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 and build the next 50-year track record like Don has now and, and stuff like that. But... That being said, for for most people, you're absolutely right. It is better to um, divide their money and invest with uh, uh, some professional managers who have that attention to detail and the experience. The challenge I think there is, is that often I see trend-following systems being sold to the public as easy, right? Or it's simple, easy, anyone can do it, just buy my software, buy my rules, and you'll be fine. And and that's the narrative. Now we're back to this thing about narrative. I mean, that's the narrative that often people want to hear, and they go and they have a bad experience and they leave the strategy forever because they, um, yeah, they didn't necessarily know all the intricate details that you have to be be familiar with when it comes to this strategy. And um, the amount of, at the same time, I was getting the rules and the objective, critical thinking, and objective way of looking at things. I was also getting this amazing encouragement and support. It was not just a manual of rules, the turtle handbook. It was having uh, your mentor and uh, the creator and this genius people who created these systems, did these back tests, were superstars in math and strategy saying, hey, if you lose money, that's okay, as long as you're following the systems and just follow the rules, trade small, Gonna, that's how you're going to be graded. And that's just a pretend way of life. Nowadays, if the clients said, uh, well, look, if I could get out of this trade now, we may make more money, but it's breaking the rules. You know, someone would say, go break the rules. You know, I don't care. <laughs> and so yeah. it's like handing somebody a, a book saying, here's what it takes to be a Marine or a soccer player. Just read this book or going and participating and getting uh, not just the training but the mental part of the game, the emotional part, you're okay, you're a good person if you're losing money. And having that as a part of the rules, that is so important. And uh, I think that, you know, if, if you can't be in a turtle program, then, you know, working for a fund like that, where you have these mentors who can see 
uh, how trading really should be approached with rules and the benefits of the process and grading yourself on this process. Um, and that's invaluable to becoming a, a good trader. Yeah, and I think you made an, another good point, which I think is important to share. And that is, I think, that all of us who uh, to who jump on these uh, podcasts every week, I mean, we actually learn something new as well. It's not like we are just sharing stuff that we already know. I mean, along the along the way, we we learn from each other. We learn from the people around us, our peers, their articles, their insights, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It really is um, something where we can say safely say we are still students of trend following. It never stops. But what what does help us is just, you know, 30 plus years of experience. And that's invaluable. And that's something that you can't do other than by doing it for 30 plus years, so to speak. I've just gotten so much uh, benefit from listening to Richard on the podcast and in the clubhouse and others. Because some of these things you kind of know, you've maybe forgotten them a bit. But it does matter to even us and everybody doesn't even have a... Uh, obviously, it doesn't it doesn't have the, our experience, but even to people who have lots of experience, uh, just the way that it, they can twist the phrase and get you to see a little insight, and it sits in your head a different way. Taking profits, outliers. Yeah, this has been a big re-education for me because I sort of lost track that that was really my bottom line is to catch these outlier trades and trade a lot of markets. And it's like I know that from day one, but I had sort of minimized that, and I was trying to be too precise with my uh, portfolio weightings and all of these things that uh, didn't really matter so much. Yeah. Well, speaking of Rich, he's got uh, a tweet that you brought also as um, as something, and that was, I think, volatility, schmolatility, apply a rules-based process that enforces asymmetry into the process. And then there's like a chart of, three different time frames with three different equity curves. But of course, the one that's really interesting is the one that is the longest, meaning when you apply this process for decades and not just for a few years, that's when you can really see the uh, the result. Yeah, I th thought this was a pretty good way of uh, reminding ourselves that on a daily basis, we're, we can see a lot of choppiness. And we talked about some of those profit uh, give backs we've seen in these trends and losses we've been taking recently. And you get, get really focused. We're humans. Uh, we're going to get focused on the here and now. And looking at the daily charts can really, you know, is a little discouraging sometimes. Um, but the years, you know, if we look at the year and how it's progressed, maybe we look, the chart looks a little bit better. But looking at our equity on over decades and the charts over decades, you see these great trends. There were no trouble, just I bet you back in the day when uh, Jerry was looking at this trend 20 years ago, he probably didn't even care at all about what's going on in these little down days. Oh, let me tell you, I cared. <laughs> and we talked about this morning too. Rich said, um, I don't look at charts. Yeah. And I'm thinking, yeah, of course. I mean, you're committed to a strategy. It's systematic. You have your rules. You complain and you and you kind of like, chime in when people talk about how hard it is and to stay disciplined and follow your rules you know yeah because you're looking at the charts you're looking at the in it you're looking at your profit every day i'm not saying don't ever but part of the success in this business is uh hey look if you really believe in the rules and systems then 
put yourself in a situation where someone else is going to do your trades. You're sending them the trades in the morning uh, for them to do, and you're just then you're playing golf or um, thinking about other things about the market, but not the ups and downs of some of these trends that are going to tempt you to maybe override or not be disciplined or be just have anxiety. You know, this is like the greatest lifestyle ever. Long-term trend following. Uh, it's profitable for one, and it, you have a lot of free time. And I spend my free time um, during the day just obsessing over finding markets. And, you know, I've sort of ex exhausted my commodity futures and the futures market. So I'm kind of looking into stocks that, once, like I said earlier, that if I added them to the portfolio, that most of the time they would give me some meaningful diversification because they're weird, unique, and or they're, they're um, connected to maybe a commodity that I can't get my hands on in the futures markets. Yeah, no, makes to total sense. All right, we're going to pivot a little bit before we wrap up. I just wanted to, uh, you were tweeting a, an article from Hedgefront Journal um, regarding um, one of our peers, one of our very respected peers, Alpha Simplex. And I think actually it's uh, Katie Kaminsky that they are talking to or, or had a um, yeah discussion with for this uh, article. And um, I only skimmed it. I know you probably read it much more than I did, but um, there are a few things that I thought maybe could be interesting to bring up as a talking point before we wrap up uh, this week. One of the things, and I'm I'm kind of again just just from quickly skimming through the 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 article. And this goes into some of the discussions we've had amongst uh, us, actually, with Rob and, and, and Rich and Moritz and, 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 and Mark, where we talk about this slightly difference between diversifying across timeframes, but essentially using the same type of trend-following model. And then what, what I think they're doing, um, and others are doing as well, of course, is where they allocate to a number of different types of, of models. There is something about here she write or they, they write the capital allocated to the adaptive models have uh, has grown over time as we have gained confidence out of sample. This is a key differentiator as is robustifying allocations between the models. Machine learning and nonlinear techniques have been used from the start and have steadily expanded to a 40% allocation, embracing broader and more complex approaches and techniques. The nonlinear techniques include kernel regressions, scenario-based analysis, and random forests. <laughs> so those are definitely different types of uh, trend-following things that than, than most people are, are familiar with. Uh, so, so that is, I mean, how how do you look at that? Um, how do you look at the debate between should we do trend following using different methods, or should we do trend following using the same method, but but obviously, like most people would do in any in in any event, just allow the difference really to be that the kind of the speed or the time uh, look back period that we we apply. Yeah, well, and by the way, Jerry, I want sorry to interrupt you here before you even get started. That's very rude of me, actually, but. You know, I heard you say, I think it was last week, but where you discussed this with a few of your friends at Clubhouse, where you, you talked about you had tried to apply shorter term models, but they detract from your performance. Remember that conversation? Yes. Okay. So I sat there listening and I thought, well, hang on. Maybe this is just 
a result of the fact that short-term trend following doesn't work very well. So when you look at those who are successful in the short-term space, they don't do trend following like you and I know it. They do some kind of momentum trading or something that might take a breakout, but might get out at a time stop rather than wait for the market to grin. So, so my point was, yeah, well, maybe we do want the shorter term trading in our portfolio to dampen some of those drawdowns, but we need to think about short term differently than just applying the same methodologies with shorter term timeframes. We need to develop models that does work and does make money over time, do make money over time in the short term space. So I just wanted to remember to bring that up with you as well. <laughs> no, that's a good point. I, I agree. I just think it's hard. It's harder. Sure. And, um, you know, but to me, it's just going to all come back to this one idea, which is sample size. And mm -hmm. if you get out there to the meat of the what works, you know, the, these longer term breakouts, then everything works and it works about the same. And if you trade too short term, that doesn't work as well. So you're right. You've got to do something different. But mm -hmm. how different, if it's different, is it still right? And one entry, one exit and a stop loss. I know that's right, but that doesn't work that well in the short term stuff. So I don't, I don't think that I would approve of, um, I laugh because, you know, who am I to prove anything, but I couldn't get this by my sample size filters, this idea of a time stop. I don't think that's something I could do. I don't think that's right. I'd have to run it by the math guys, but I'm pretty sure I could not do that. And so I think that's where the rubber meets the road is that I, I'm not smart enough to come up with it, but if you come up with it, I'll probably criticize it. So I, I'll probably say it's not. And you, as you've said many times though, how hard is it and how inconsistent are those guys who try to get into this short-term space where there would be so much more competition uh, because the drawdowns are smaller. I can make the same amount of money as Jerry with a lot less drawdown. Well, I mean, that's going to attract a lot of smart people. And they also talk about these shorter-term methods. They have a time window. They work for a while, then we find another one. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. or you can just keep doing the long-term trend following. I'm like, okay, I raise my hand on that one. I'll just keep uh, keep doing that one. Yeah, but it kind of ties into what uh, Katie says in this article about, you know, at least from their perspective, it sounds like that they have embraced a lot more different types of trend following and all sorts of from machine learning and and stuff like that. So th th there's there's no doubt that that you know the way classical trend following has has you know where it's evolved from is that there's a lot of creative freedom in that space which is important for people to understand because it also explains the difference in performance from time to time i think i was a little surprised and perplexed by the i think they mentioned the word simple and then classic <laughs> and i was like and then they mentioned words that i had no idea what they meant and so <laughs> we talked about this on uh on clubhouse and a lot of the smart guys on clubhouse they could, didn't understand these words either I, you know, to some degree, I think that you could raise a lot more money if the majority of your performance does not betray trend following, but you ha can wrap it into these other ways of doing things and know those words and speak that really good language. Your AUM is going to be, I mean, look at it. I mean, who has all the AUM? It was another um, article that I tweeted a while back about a firm 
very big, famous, a lot of smart guys uh, in Europe, and they closed down this fund that was machine, their first attempt or recent attempt at machine learning. And uh, it's an article, and I tweeted it, and it's it goes like this. Um, oh, yeah, the what was happening with the machine learning is sometimes it was too correlated to the trend models. And they said, to account for this and minimize this potential correlation, we decided to introduce penalties in the portfolio process. Ultimately, this decision proved very costly during this recent period. So in other words, if we come up with these ideas, there are going to be periods where trend is going to really do a lot better, February of last year, where classic trend hitting the breakouts was the only thing that's going to work. The quicker, the better. And so if you let these fancier type models with these shorter term and machine learning and AI, they do have this potential to really underperform because they're learning, but trend following is not learning. All trend following knows is this breakout works, that breakout exit works, but everything else is not going to look like the past. Well, these other methods are like, no, no, we will look like the past and we're learning. The more past we see and participate in, the better we're going to get. However, it doesn't really work out that way. So it's dangerous to try to get it, to not include trend, you know, in some of these models, because that to me is the real big learning piece is that sometimes you can't predict and trend is going to do you right. And missing this trend, I mean, it's everything. You know, how many times have I looked at, well, how can I improve this entry? How can I have fewer losses? What should my unit size be? 0.1 or 0.12? And then the markets take off and you get these outlier moves. You're like, oh yeah, I guess, I guess that's what's important. And all of the people around me who don't pay attention to anything, they did the same thing. They got onto the soybeans and corn and lumber, and they made as much as I did. And all these proposed, pretend differences we all have, they all fall aside when the big thing happens, which is the markets take off. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's so important. I don't know if there is anything you took away from that you wanted to bring up from the article. One thing that I noticed that there was a little bit of a, um, a paragraph about macroeconomic climate for trend following. And they they write in the article, they say the research predates the near 40-year bond bull market and low inflation regime that began in 1981 and considers how trend-following strategies might have fared not just in the 1960s and the 1970s, but also in the previous centuries. And they say historical analysis of trend-followers over the centuries suggest that they would have performed better under inflationary climates. I mean... We actually recently did also a some research on our side because we go back to the 1974 in terms of actual trading. So we have actually traded through inflationary periods um, at done. And we also did some work in terms of applying our current models back then without it. So including all the all the improvements we've done over time. And actually, that's really fascinating to to see. And and generally, I would agree with the, their conclusion that even our current models would have performed better during those in you know inflationary times. But actually, generally speaking, of course, because that's what the improvements is all about, is that they you know um, would perform better generally speaking, but including inflationary periods. So, 
I'm kind of cheering for a little bit of inflation, not necessarily uh, hyperinflation, but but it would be nice if if it if it um, kind of gives a little bit of uh, more, as I talked about before, more freedom, more divergence in in the markets, because that's really what what our type of style of trading um, trend following likes, and I think that's what they confirmed in their long term data set, Katie and, and Alex, when they did their uh, book. Yeah, long commodities, man, you just can't beat it. Um, I mean, we're going to see these kind of trades in the currencies. And I guess we did have some big trends in the bonds, but I just wonder sometimes, but I'm still committed. I'm still committed to trading all these markets. And But those commodities are so much fun. And I really have no interest in looking back and trying to s- see how we've done in certain regimes or tr- certainly not trying to predict these regimes I feel bad for people because now it's a lot of comments and articles and Twitter about inflation and commodities and supply chain. Well, we hit those breakouts a year ago or longer without any of that talk. There was no regime. That regime, at the same time regime talk picked up, we were making uh, lots of money. So it's just a dangerous way of looking at It's always going to, nothing's going to be gained really by modifying your approach with anything other than, you know, your rules, your your price-based rules on entries and exits. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, before we wrap up, let me quickly um, inform you about how performance looks like. Obviously, these are uh, a day early, so Wednesday evening numbers, but still up a little bit for the BTOP50 index. Uh, for the month of uh, November, up uh, almost 12% for the year. Stock Gen CT Index, uh, also up 16 basis points for the month, up 10% for the year. And the Trend Index, up 18 basis points in November, up 14.15% so far this year. And the Short Term Traders Index, up uh, almost a percent this month, up 3% for the year. My trend barometer is so weakish at the moment, so uh, 34, so it kind of ties in with a bit of a flat month at the moment. Equity is still strong, up almost 20% now on the MSCI World Index and even bonds, the World Government Bond Index is up this month. We're going to wrap up this uh, conversation. As uh, mentioned before, we recorded it a day early, so but hopefully there won't be any major things we're going to be miss out. Next week, I will be joined by Mark, so uh, keep your questions coming and you can email them to info at and we'll do our best to get them out there. We'll be trying to put together a, um, as mentioned before, the whole team of the systematic investor team here. We'll try and get um, a recording done where we can all join. So if you have questions, just start sending them in and maybe we can have like a a mega year-end trend-following session that will be fun and we can hear debates between Jerry and Rob and Moritz and Mark and myself. So uh, I think that could be great. I just need to make sure I can line up everyone at the same time. But anyways, as always, thank you so much for listening from Jerry and me. Until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. 
And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor. 